you have a Bible, I invite you to open to Acts chapter 2, chapter 1, sorry, Acts chapter 1, as we begin our second week in our series on Acts. As you're doing that, I'm just going to kind of take inventory of who actually came back from last week, who's not scared of our group prayer time. We lost half of our college students this morning, and uh, I called them out on it. Acts chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 1, same text as we read last week. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. You would pray with me. Father, we pray that you would honor the very reading of your word, and that even now through your spirit, you would begin opening up hearts and minds to receive that. Lord Jesus, we want to hear from you in this place. We want to look more like you as we leave this place. And so I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things that I've really enjoyed, especially when my girls were younger, is coaching, coaching soccer. Uh, I enjoy spending time with them. I enjoy actually the game and uh, teaching them how to have fun in the game and yet also work hard at soccer. You you can learn a lot of life's lessons um, through practice. You can learn grit and hard work 
And I, I just loved instilling those things in my girls. But one of the things that I didn't think I would enjoy as much as I did was, uh, was the time right before the game starts when you have the huddle up and you get to do the pep talk, the little pep talk. And, uh, and I loved gathering all the girls together and we put our hands in there and I'd, I'd look them all in the eye and I would remind them of the things we went over in practice. And I would tell them that I believed in them, that they were gonna do great. And, and, and I was so excited about the game. And then I would usually say something like, and about the other team, well, never mind. I, I probably shouldn't say anything. And I'd pretend to walk away. And they'd be like, what? What about the other team? And I'm like, well, no, I, I, I shouldn't have said anything. I'm sorry. You know, like, no, you got to tell us about the other team. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't want to say this, but do y'all like puppies? And they'd say, oh, yeah, we, we love puppies. And they're just talking about puppies. And I was like, that team hates puppies. They hate puppies, they hate kittens, they hate flowers, they hate the sunshine. They hate everything that is good in this world. They hate Chick-fil-A. And, and these kids are just ready to explode at this point and we have our Braveheart moment and we storm the field and the other team would not know what hit them for the first two or three minutes uh, because our, we played like a team possessed. Now, you, you can't give that pep talk too early I, that's got to be right before the whistle blows. Uh, because if you did it 10 minutes early, then they're distracted. They're thinking of other things. Right before the whistle blows, they want to go out there and they want to knock off other kids' heads. The timing was everything. Now, now in our time in Acts here, Jesus is essentially, he's doing the huddle. He's essentially doing the pep talk before the game is on. And he's got the disciples all gathered around and and he is saying things like, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And they're looking at the resurrected Jesus, and they are ready. They are ready to get out there. But after he says, all authority has been given to me, and after he gives them the great commission that they are to go to the ends of the earth, and as they do that, he will be with them, he then says, wait. You guys, you need to wait. I mean, can you imagine how hard that would have been? I mean, the resurrected Jesus was next to them. I mean, sure, they had failed Jesus in the past, but they had a new resolve now that they knew he had conquered sin and death, and they were ready to get out there and to win the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait. I can't imagine Peter being the waiting type. I bet he had an especially hard time doing this. But, but the fact is, as willing and as able as at least the disciples thought they were, to get out there and conquer the world as willing as they were, can you really imagine them doing so just because they now had this newfound courage? I mean, was the world really going to be changed because of Peter's leadership skills? Or the world going to be changed because of Thomas's apologetics or because Matthew's financial savvy? Was the world going to be changed because of the energy of James and John and all that they brought to the table? Was the world going to be changed because of Simon the Zealot's political connections? How was the world going to be changed? The world was going to be changed because Jesus was about to unleash his spirit upon these people and change the world. It wasn't going to be changed because of their gifts or their new resolve. They were powerless apart from the Spirit of God. 
And so Jesus, he has them wait for 10 days. They could do nothing but think about how incapable they are to carry out the mission that Jesus just gave them. For 10 days, all they can think of is how powerless they are to accomplish the task given. For 10 days, they just waited for the Spirit. Jesus wanted them to understand that changing the world was not something that they were going to do for Jesus. Changing the world was something that Jesus was going to do through them. Jesus was the one who was going to give them the power to do this. Now, the reason that Jesus could so emphatically tell them in verse 8 that they would be his witnesses to the uttermost ends of the earth, and he could say that so definitively, you will be my witnesses, is because he says, you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When that power comes upon them, the world will be changed. He says, that's why you have to wait. You have to wait for that power. Now, the Holy Spirit, he is the main character here in the book of Acts. People are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're going to speak with the Holy, after being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going to prophesy through the Holy Spirit, heal people through the Holy Spirit, be convicted of their sins through the Holy Spirit be given instructions by the Holy Spirit. They're going to be called to missions by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 59 times in the book of Acts. He is the central character. And although this book is called the Acts of the Apostles, it could just as easily have been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And if I can just linger On that point, for just a little bit longer, I like to, because I think it's important for us as a church to really understand the Holy Spirit's role in our midst. What these disciples lacked at this point, what they lacked concerning their ability to carry out the mission that Jesus had given them, was not more knowledge. The disciples had all the knowledge that they needed, For three years, Jesus had been their teacher. They essentially had a master's of divinity taught by Jesus himself. Then after Jesus rose from the dead, they got their PhD. He began to talk to them about the kingdom of God, explain more fully who he was as the son of God. It says that he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. So now they understood Genesis all the way through to him and how the entire Bible speaks to who he is, they had the knowledge. That is not what they lacked. And they didn't need any more proof as to who Jesus was or proof concerning his resurrection. They were utterly convinced Jesus was alive. And they didn't need a plan because Jesus had already given them their plan. They were to start in Jerusalem, and then they were to go to to Judea, and then they were to cross ethnic lines, and they were to go to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, because God's plan has always been to make one family out of all the nations of the earth. They had the plan, and they weren't waiting for better timing. All of Jerusalem was abuzz at this point with the resurrection of Jesus. It was, it was a powder keg just waiting to explode. 
But what they lacked was the fire to light the powder keg. They lacked the Holy Spirit fire. And without this, they were powerless to change the world. The reason I want to belabor this point is because I think we often forget this. I often forget this. I think our church can forget this. We can think the success and failure of the mission that we have been given by God depends on better planning, better timing, better finances, or better facilities. The mission of God depends on better programming or better music, maybe better marketing. The sad truth is 95% of what most churches do can be done with, without the Holy Spirit, can just function completely fine, and we, yet we wonder why the world does not reach. But ultimately, the world's not going to be transformed by any new hip program or by anything that we ultimately bring to the table. We're not transformed by that. We are transformed by the Holy Spirit. In John 16, Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I became painfully aware of my failure in this area last week. Um, as a lot of you know, that I struggle at times with preaching. Uh, it doesn't come that naturally to me. And, and last week was one of the worst times for me. Um, and I don't know if it was just extreme fatigue or uh, dyslexia or, or a combination of both, but I could not say simple words last week. Uh, not complicated ones like, you know, anthropomorphism or something like that. This was, this was the word still. I could not say the word still last week. I was pronouncing it steel, all right? Like I was from Alexander City, all right? <laughs> I asked somebody from Alexander City if I can use that, and they were like, what was wrong with that? Um, <laughs> But I kept saying the word still, and I wanted to say still, that Jesus was still doing these things. He was still doing these things. And as I'm saying the word still, I, I know it's like, something's not right. Something's wrong. That's the wrong word. Why can't I say this word correctly? And, and yet I kept saying it, still. And so I, I'm thinking as this is going on, it's like, how, well, how do you spell it? All right, you spell it S-T-E-E-L. No, that's not. That's what I'm saying. That's not the word it. And I'm thinking it's S-T-E-A-L. It's like, that's not it either. I was like, I can't even think of how to spell this dang word that I'm mispronouncing in front of everybody. And I'm thinking all of this while I'm preaching. <laughs> and so then I just get in a conversation with the Lord. I'm like, why in the world do you have me get up here so I can make a fool of myself in front of all of these people? Why do I have to do this every single week? Meanwhile, I'm still preaching as all this is going on. After the service, I just wanted to beeline at home. I just wanted to get out of there. I just wanted to go home. And somebody stopped me before I could leave and said, hey, I'd, I'd love, love it if you would pray with me. I said, okay. I said, I just want you to know that as you were preaching, the Holy Spirit just so convicted me in these areas. Um, and you know who you are and I was talking with. I want you to know that the Holy Spirit slew me in that moment, slew me for my arrogance. As if I thought 
the Holy Spirit's work depended upon my performance. As if I I have to perform a certain way in order for the kingdom of God to advance. The arrogance of that. And yes, an arrogance that we fall into all of the time. As a church, we fall into this, thinking we have to get everything perfectly right. It has to be some new plan, some new program, some better music, something. That's the only way we can reach the world as if it depends upon us. Tell me, when has there ever been a revival that has happened? God doing extraordinary work because a pastor made it through a sermon without messing up. Like God's up there going, you made it all the way through. You're like, I'm going to send my spirit now. God is not limited by these things. If you look at the great revivals in history, you'll notice that that never happened because of the preacher and a great sermon. Simply because the Holy Spirit came and he wanted to make Jesus known to people. In 1859, or 1857, sorry, there was a great revival that happened in New York City. There was a pastor named Jeremiah Lanfear, and he decided that he really just wanted to see people reach the lost reached for Jesus. And in 1857, he handed out pamphlets. And this is what the pamphlet said. A day prayer meeting is held every Wednesday from 12 to 1 o'clock in the consistory building of the North Dutch Church, corner of Fulton and William Streets. This meeting is intended to give merchants, mechanics, clerks, strangers, and businessmen generally an opportunity to stop and call on God amid the perplexities incident to their respective avocations. It will continue for one hour, but it is designed for those who find it inconvenient to remain more than five or ten minutes, as well as for those who can spare the whole hour. I mean, it's not exactly a page-turner pamphlet, (laughs) but he hands all of these out, and so the, the first meeting, it was just him. And he's just praying, but 30 minutes into it, six guys came, and they stayed for the prayer meeting. The next week, they had 15. The week after that, they had 30. Within six months, 10,000 people were meeting every day for prayer. 10,000 people, all meeting and confessing their sins, pouring out their hearts to God. These were people that were uh, across different ethnic lines. This was the wealthy and the poor. It became this melting pot of people just pouring out their hearts to the Lord. The New York Times wrote this about, about what was going on. It says, the great wave of religious excitement, which is now sweeping over this nation, is one of the most remarkable movements since the Reformation. Travelers relate that in cars and in steamboats and banks and markets, everywhere through the interior, this matter is an absorbing topic. Churches are crowded. Bank directors' rooms become oratories. Schoolhouses are turned into chapels. Converts are numbered by the scores of thousands. Similar assemblies we find in other places of the city— A theater is turned into a chapel. Churches of all sects are open and crowded by day and night. It is most impressive to think that over this great land, 
tens and fifties of thousands of men and women are putting themselves at this time in a simple and serious way, the greatest question that can ever come before the human mind. What shall we do to be saved from our sins? This revival spread outside of New York City, and in 1858, there were 20,000 baptisms per week for the entire year. 20,000 baptisms a week as this revival spread across America. And what you see here is something similar to Pentecost. It's, it's a revival coming. It's Holy Spirit power coming and just transforming hearts on a mass scale. Around this exact same time, you had across the pond a revival that was happening in Ireland, in the Ulster, Northern Ireland area, an area that's near and dear to my heart. I spent 10 years of my life uh, during the summers going there. And during this time, there was four young men who were in the city of Kells, and they got together deciding that they wanted to pray because they wanted to know Jesus more and they wanted to make Jesus known. They wanted the lost to be saved. And so they decided to meet every Friday night from September 1857, and they did. They met through the long, cold winter, and it was just them. And they didn't see a single convert for three months. Then finally, one person was converted. They kept praying for another year, and 50 were added. And then in 1859, 100,000 people that year came to know the Lord in Northern Ireland. 100,000 people were converted. This spread over to Scotland, where 300,000 people were converted the next year. It's the Holy Spirit doing his work. I was reading some of the articles about this and how crime and prostitution were nearly eliminated in Northern Ireland. And there was a reporter who interviewed a former prostitute and asked her why she had quit being a prostitute. And she talked about the genuine change that had come upon her and that she could no longer do that line of work. What I thought was hilarious was the line she said after that. And she goes, plus, I can't find any more clients. The Lord was changing hearts on a massive scale. The Holy Spirit was doing in a moment what could not be done by an entire army working their hardest. This is why Jesus said, wait. Wait until the power of the Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. Perhaps we as a church, if we really want our city and our world to be changed, or for us personally to be changed, we need to renew our focus on waiting for the Spirit of God in prayer. Trusting in His power and not our own. Perhaps we probably should find an upper room and to go and spare that five to ten inconvenient minutes and to pray. Now, just so you know, I grew up in a church where we didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit. It's not that we didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. I mean, you have to. You believe in the Trinity. There's the Father, Son, and the Spirit. It's just we didn't know what to do with them. Um, the best analogy I would have is he was kind of like that weird uncle you saw once a year at a family reunion. 
And, uh, you know, he dressed differently, you know, wearing some bizarre hat or bizarre shoes that he picked up from one of his world travels. He was the one who would always tell these bizarre stories to any of the kids that would listen to him. And he looked at this guy and you knew you were related somehow. And you knew that you actually, you did love him. But whenever he came and gave you a hug, it just felt awkward. And you would have preferred just keeping your distance. And that's how I kind of grew up thinking of the Holy Spirit. We're in the same family, but you're just strange. (laughs) And I kind of want to keep my distance. And then I went into a college ministry that was the exact opposite of this. It was Holy Spirit everything. I mean, they would come to a service and they were ready to get their Holy Spirit on. They're handing out tambourines. I mean, it, it was just, it was time to encounter the Holy Spirit in every occasion. Every song was about the Holy Spirit. Every message was about the Holy Spirit. We had Holy Spirit conferences. If you prayed a prayer over your lunch, you said a blessing. If you didn't mention the Holy Spirit three or four times, I mean, it probably didn't count. That's the kind of people that I would always hang out with that defined our college ministry. But the truth is, both the church that I grew up in in this college ministry that I was a part of, neglected the true work of the Spirit. I'm not sure either of these groups really knew who the Holy Spirit was. My old church, they acted like, you know, the Trinity was the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. And really, that I was taught a lot of moral conformity, but very little about how the Spirit of God can actually transform your heart into obedience. So that was neglected. But then in this college ministry, they had mostly reduced the Holy Spirit to an emotional experience or to some impersonal force or power. It might surprise you to know that only one time in the book of Acts, and that's in Acts 8, when the Samaritans are getting their own Pentecost, but only one time in the book of Acts does anybody actually pray for the Spirit of God to come? Spirit of God, come. And that's when Peter is wanting the Samaritans to have their own Pentecost. It also might surprise you to know that never once, not a single time in Acts, do you find anyone ever praying for power. The church never prays for power. Yet I have found in almost all of the charismatic circles that I've been a part of, by far the thing that is prayed for most is, Holy Spirit, will you come and work in power? Will you move in power? I want to be careful here because Acts is full of times in which the Holy Spirit comes down and moves in power. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with praying for the Holy Spirit to come and to move in power. I just want you to see that's not the focus of what is happening in Acts when we actually do see the word of God or the spirit of God coming down and moving in power. It was not the focus of the early church's prayers. Their focus was this. Jesus, we want to know you more. You've ascended, you physically left us, but we still want to know you more and we want to hear from you and we want the world to know you. 
That was their prayer. And the Holy Spirit, when he hears people praying how they want to know Jesus and how they want the world to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit says, I want that exact same thing, so why don't I come down and help you out? The Holy Spirit says, I can get on board with that. And he comes down and he works through these people in power. And that's what you see at Pentecost. And that's what you see over and over through the book of Acts. These people, they did not meet in the upper room in order that they could get chill bumps. That wasn't the goal. They met in the upper room because they wanted to pray that the glory of Jesus would spread to the ends of the earth. And then the Holy Spirit came down to ensure that that happened. I'd just like to interject here also that when we pray for these things, when we pray for the lost be open to the, the idea that you don't have to speak during this time of prayer, but you can listen. And Jesus is ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And currently, right now, he is making intercession for you. He is praying for you. And we can listen to this in our quiet moments. And, and can I just say that if you could hear, if you could hear just for one minute how Jesus is currently praying for you, you would not fear a thousand foes. There is not one thing that you would not gladly give up in sacrificial service to him. If you could just hear for a minute how your Savior is praying for you. And so part of our intercession is simply listening to a God who still speaks to us. A God that we want to know. Jesus, we want to know you and we want your glory to be known. And the Holy Spirit says, I can get on board with that. And he comes and he moves in power. Church, are we doing this? The language that's used here to describe this is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said was going to happen to the disciples, that they were going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus describing this event, he calls it being clothed in power. You are going to be clothed in power. The word baptized means to immerse, uh, to dip, to bathe. If you combine the clothed in power with the, the notion of being immersed, basically it's to be completely enveloped You're to be baptized with the Holy Spirit clothed in power. And we know that this happens at Pentecost, which is what we're going to look at next week. This happens when the disciples are gathered in that upper room after 10 days and the Holy Spirit falls down upon them. And in chapter two, verse four, we read that they were filled with the spirit. So instead of using the language baptized with the spirit, when, when the baptism comes, the language that Luke uses, he describes that moment as they were filled with the spirit. And that's the language that Luke is going to use for the rest of the book of the book of Acts. And they will continually be filled with the spirit. This is not a one-time event. It's not a two times two times event this happens two three four five times over and over through acts they will be filled with the spirit of god and then when they're filled with the spirit of god they go out and they testify about jesus over and over you will see that when the disciples are filled with his spirit they 
powerfully testify to the lordship of Jesus. And so you see that in Acts 2, 4, when they're filled with the spirit of God, they go out and they boldly preach in his name. And the result is there are 3,000 people saved. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, it says that Peter, he was filled with the spirit and he began to boldly proclaim who Jesus was. And the religious leaders looked at him and they said, how in the world are such powerful words coming out of such an uneducated man? In Acts 4.31, it says that the disciples were gathered together, and once again, they were filled with the Spirit, and they began to proclaim the gospel, and many were added to the Lord. Acts 6, you have Stephen, who's a man full of the Holy Spirit, and what does a man who's full of the Holy Spirit do? He proclaims the gospel, and he preaches one of the best sermons you'll ever hear. And it says that people could not believe, they, they couldn't believe the spirit or his wisdom and his spirit as he spoke. 59 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Acts and in 39 of those times, the Holy Spirit is speaking. He is filling people to proclaim. In Acts chapter 9, verse 17 is when Paul, he is converted and he is filled with the Spirit. And the first thing that happens after he is filled with the Spirit, it says he immediately goes to the synagogue and he begins to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God and people were amazed. Acts 11, Barnabas, filled with the Spirit. He immediately begins preaching. And it says that many people were added to the, to the Lord. Over and over again, as we read through Acts, people are filled with the Spirit. They boldly, powerfully proclaim who Jesus is, and people are changed. You will be my witnesses. Why? Because you will be filled with power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And the reason that these disciples can declare so boldly who Jesus is is because when the Holy Spirit has descended upon them, has filled them, they don't just know Jesus, they know Jesus. This is the spirit of Jesus filling them. And if you know Jesus, you cannot help but declare who he is. And the world knows if you're a fraud or not and you're a declaration of Jesus. And when these men came and they were boldly declaring who Jesus is, they knew that those men had been meeting with Jesus. They were filled with Jesus. And now they began to overflow Jesus to the world. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Is this what's happening in our midst? Let's quote one of the great saints, Bono of you two. Bono says, a religion is what happens when the spirit has left the building. Religion is what happens when the spirit has left the building. I don't know about you, but I don't want religion. I don't want religion. I want Jesus. I don't want empty programs, empty facilities, empty music. I want to know Jesus and I want him to be known. So can we, church, pray? Pray for a fresh work of God's Spirit to make Jesus known to us and to make Jesus known to the world? That's actually how I'd love for us to close our time together is in prayer. 
And so we are going to break up into groups and we're going to pray for these things. And this is what I want us to pray for. Pray that we would come to know Jesus more. That he's not just an important figure in history, but he's the living Lord and we can know him. Actually know him. Pray if you don't know Jesus, pray that you would. Pray that he would come and he would change your heart or just listen to the other people as they pray. And then I would like for us to pray for those who we know who do not know Jesus. Pray for them by name, those who we know who are lost. And hear me, don't pray for an opportunity to preach the gospel. We'll get to this as we go through Acts. You're not going to be praying for opportunities. Know Jesus, and you're going to know opportunities. Every day you have the opportunity to share Jesus. You don't have to pray for more opportunities. They're all around you. Pray for the boldness to declare what you believe. And then I'd say maybe take time to listen because I believe in a Jesus who still speaks. So let me pray for us briefly and then let's break into prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray you would be with us in this time. Lord, we want to know you. And we want the world to know you. So Holy Spirit, come and direct our time of prayer. All for the glory of Jesus. Amen.